Good morning. Welcome to Three Women, Three Ways. We're a show that tackles some tough topics sometimes, and the tough topic that we're tackling today is something that I think we all encounter, whether it's about politics, whether it's about religion, whether it's about goals for the family, whatever it is, we encounter those people that we have to have conversations with or that we encounter and need to have conversations with who just are uncomfortable for us. And my guest is Gleb Supersky. Welcome, Gleb. Thank you so much for having me on, Heather. It's a pleasure. You're welcome. Now, Gleb is with. Are, are you? Do you have a title that I should be using, Gleb? Oh, um, I'm a I'm professor at Ohio State University, so my technical <laughs> title is assistant professor. So okay. uh, that's, I guess, one of my titles. <laughs> Okay, also, great. Well, assistant uh, professor. Yeah. Yes. Um, I'm also and, the pre- um, president and founder. That's right. I'm also the president and uh, co-founder of a nonprofit called Intentional Insights. And okay, uh, well, I'm we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, uh, so, assistant professor Gleb Supersky, and you kind of specialize in an unusual area. Now, your background is, um, uh, you, well, your passions are truth-oriented behavior, which is interesting because sometimes my truth isn't the same as somebody else's truth. Um, and mm. I like to think, you know, my rigid little background likes to think that there's only one truth. But, in fact, we all see things from different perspectives. So, eh, I don't know. Uh, so, truth-oriented behavior, rational thinking, and wise decision-making, which is something that I see not being practiced a lot. You're also Mm. an author, um, The Truth Seeker's Handbook, A Science-Based Guide, and another book called Find Your Purpose Using Science. And from the reading that I've done about you, Gleb, it looks like you're really kind of an expert on avoiding disasters about decision-making using Mm decision-making science and emotional Mm -hmm. and social intelligence. What is decision-making science? So it's the science of how to make effective decisions and how to avoid bad decisions. You know, most of the small or large disasters in our lives happen as a result of one or a series of decisions. And scholars have recently been studying how do we actually avoid those disasters, whether in business, in personal life, in relationships, in politics. And that's my topic. How do you actually avoid those disasters? That's not the focus of my can research. You, can you devi- avoid disasters? I don't know. Um, it seems like a lot of, I, I understand what you're saying, a lot of the times when things go mm-hmm. south, they go south, because, I mean, you can pretty much pinpoint the, the, the time at which they started to turn there. Um, so uh, what does science, how can science help us with those decisions? So science can help us with those decisions because Decision-making is a skill like any other skill. When you learn to read, that's a skill. When you learn to drive a car, that's a skill. When you learn to uh, give presentations and talks, that's a skill. When you learn to uh, be a radio presenter, that's a skill set. And we, don't know, we often don't think about decisions as a skill set. We just go about life making decisions. You know, everything we do in life is a decision. Whether What we have to eat, from who we marry, to what kind of a job we lead, and Everything is a decision. But we don't think about how can we improve our skills at making decisions. And that is a, there's 
quite a bit of research about how we can improve those skills, which is the skill set called meta decision making. How do you focus on making better decisions? Just like you can you know, go about your life and not improve your skill at having conversations, or you can go and you know, have some training in how to have better conversations or presentations and so on. So there's quite a bit of uh, research on what makes us make bad decisions. And there are a lot of people who tend to go with their gut, with their intuitions, and that's pretty bad, actually, at making good decisions. So uh, P, when people go with their if gut, you that's just described me. You understand you've just described me, the go with the gut type. <laughs> I'm sorry, Heather. I'm sorry. Uh, it tends to, the research tends to show that going with your gut, on average, is going to be wrong 20% uh, of the time. So I'll give an example. When studies show that when people say they're 100% confident in their answer in something, they will actually be wrong 20% of the time. That means that when people bet the house on something, you know, they will lose the house 20% of the time. It's terrible oh. that people do this, but that's what, exactly what happens. And that's why you see people go bankrupt and lose a lot of their money and so on. So you see companies fall apart. That's why you see political leaders make terrible, horrible decisions. And you go back and you say, how could they have made this decision? I mean, look at what's happening in Wells, to Wells Fargo right now that, you know, it's uh, made a terrible set of decisions, which is really costing it right now in court and so on. And uh, but now that's a really bad set of decisions. So we can talk about politics later, but, you know, we can see a lot of that there. People have divorce rates uh, are at about, last I checked, around 40%. So when people say they're getting married for life, it's not really for life. And so we can see that people make a lot of bad well, decisions. Well, now, wait a minute. 60% of them do it for life. <laughs> Wonderful. That's still the majority. Is, you know, but the, the, the rest, the rest think, that, think that they're doing it for life. But, you know, like I said, when you think you're 100% certain, research shows you're actually wrong 20% of the time. That's really bad. Well, still, you know, when and you say that, 20%, I'm thinking, well, that's not that bad. I mean, random, you would think 50% of the time. And, I mean, if you just threw a dart at a dartboard, you'd think, okay, you know, bell curve and all that, you'd probably be mm -hmm. wrong about 50% of the time. So, actually, going with the gut is a little improvement over just some sort of random selection, right? Oh, no question. Your gut is good. Yeah, uh, I have to defend myself. Uh, that's what I'm doing here. I'm Sure. Your gut I'm is good in a series of decisions. Here. <laughs> no worries, no worries. Your gut is good in decisions that have to do with the savanna environment, with our background in the savanna. That's what it's adapted for. It's the survive and uh, it's the kind of fight, flight, or freeze response, making very quick, intuitive decisions. And it's really good for context in which there are. Um, with, when you know people really well, you can read them really well. That, that's a good. Uh, time to go with your gut when you know them really well over time. So because that's, that's we live in small tribes, or when you need to you know get out of the way of a you know moving car or something like that. However, when you actually try to make decisions that are not outside of the context for which we have evolved, which is the savanna environment, living in small tribes, that's when your gut will steer you wrong often, because our gut tends to interpret people who are different from us as enemies, as threats. When they often aren't, they are often going to be better for us than people who are in their own socio-demographic background, but that's just one out of a series of bad decisions that our gut will cause us to make. So, and I can go into many others. So going with your intuition in contexts that are different from the ones 
that were present in the savanna environment is going to lead you in the wrong direction. Okay. Well, surely sometimes, well, we already said that about the 20%, because sometimes, you know, people who are different from us are, you know, do have bad intentions and all that. Um, Yes. So, yeah, okay. Sometimes people who are like us have have bad intentions. And, you know, we don't want to, (laughs) uh, we want to make it so that it's, we we don't lose the house 20% of the time because many people don't have that house to lose. You know, imagine what our society would be like if out of every uh, ten people you see around you, two people lost their house, you know, yeah. it, it would be chaos. Yeah. It would be devastating. So you know, if so, all of your imagine all, imagine all of your friends and you know, every fifth of them, twenty percent of them lose their house. You know, it's pretty terrible. Yes, yeah, <laughs> one one that. Yeah. Um, so, but what I'm hearing you say also is, maybe, you know, a lot of the decisions that we make aren't necessarily financial or business or political. Sometimes they're just who will I be friends with, who will I confide in, who will they're more of a personal connection. Is the gut method better for that, or worse for that, or about the same? So, who, for who you confide in, if you are, if you don't know that person well then the gut will not give you, will not steer you in the right direction. It will steer you just toward people who are like you. So ah. there's, a, there's, a, the halo, there's a phenomenon called the halo and horns effect, which is basically that you tend to like, everyone tends to like people who have characteristics that are similar to them and dislike people who have characteristics that are different from them, even regardless of their whole personality. So, for example, I'm here at Columbus, and, you know, we have the Buckeyes, you know, the football game, football team. Yeah, I grew now, up in Ohio. Big rival with Mich- I grew up in Ohio. Well, there you go. <laughs> so I know what I mean. So Michigan is the big rival. And people who are Buckeyes fans will tend to have a natural animosity toward Michigan fans. They'll tend to not like them. Now, does that, so they will tend to not hire them if they're going to, you know, go into their interviews or not work with them if they're colleagues or have – you know, not marry them or other sorts of problematic dynamics. Now, does it say anything about the competence of someone as a work colleague, as a, you know, if that person is a Michigan fan or a Buckeyes fan? No, of course not. But that will influence people's decisions, and that's really highly problematic for a society that we let those things influence us. And so and you're saying that they conscious that these factors consciously influence us, or is no, it just no, no. an unconscious they don't, influence? Yes, it's, it's all at the gut level. It's the unconscious level. So okay. right. that's the kind of that's yep, and that's the kind of things that leads to sexism, racism, and other types of problematic isms as well. So the, I was just making an example with Michigan and you know uh, the Buckeyes. So it's really causes bad, bad things for our society for us to go with our guts. And again, racism, sexism, and all of these things often result from people just going with their guts and their intuitions. They think this is how I should behave, and they don't behave in a more civilized, sophisticated manner, uh, which, and then we have such bad, bad consequences that we see around us. Okay, so why? Why do we rely on our gut? Uh, do we uh, have we been told somehow that that's a good methodology, or do we just do it because we're lazy and we don't want to do research, or what? Why would we rely on our gut? Oh, because that's uh, we haven't done research until relatively recently 
on why relying on the gut can be problematic in a number of areas. So that's where I'm talking, circling back to the decision-making science that we talked about earlier onward. That, you know, I mean, I didn't know this stuff before I started looking at the decision-making research. Other people didn't either. This is stuff that's um, really coming out. It's, it's on the cutting edge of the research uh, area of why we shouldn't rely on our guts in many cases. And it's not really taught in school. It's not taught, you know, parents don't teach this to kids unless they happen to be academics who know about this stuff. So people <laughs> don't teach this, and this is not part of the popular discourse. So, you know, it sounds weird when I say this, but this is just the case that people don't know about it. So one of my, the things I do in the Truth Seekers Handbook, a science-based guide, is to help people learn about the, all of these thinking errors, halo and horns effect, and so many others, that really undermine our decision-making and cause us to go wrong so much of the time, you know, when 20% of us lose their house. Really not good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, yep. so... Uh, okay, so we, and I'm, that's the royal we, we're, we're academics, people who are smarter than me and doing research and everything, have decided that we really need to look into how we make our decisions as human beings. And when we look into it, we, they found that, um, you know, some people use this gut uh, thing and that, in fact, that's going to be wrong about 20% of the time, whether it's stock market or picking friends. What's the other option? What else can do we have besides the the gut to rely on? So, in the same way that we uh, don't have to rely on the, our our intuitions when we choose how to do presentations or engage in polite conversations with others, we can learn what are the appropriate techniques of decision making. What are the most effective techniques, as recent research shows? So, one of the techniques. Uh, just to go back to the example of the halo and horns effect, is when you notice someone who is different than you in some salient way, some, something that stands out to you, then give them more credit than you would otherwise intuitively in other areas. So, for example, if, uh, if you know, let's, I'm a Buckeyes fan, so uh, when I see a Michigan fan, I would intuitively know that my gut is going to go against this person, and I would give that person more credit. And you can actually, so when I do consulting on this topic for, um, or for organizations, I, I do some consulting for HR staff for hiring, and so I talk to them about how actually putting numbers on these things. When people are being interviewed, to give them extra credit for things that are going to be stand outside the norm of the organization and especially of the interviewer. So these are, there are some institutional things you can do as an institution, and there are some things you can do as an individual, give them extra credit when you see someone who is different than you. Okay. What about those conversations that we have with people who are different from us that make us crazy? Now, I originally mm -hmm. contacted you because you had written mm -hmm. something about those Christmas dinner conversations with the relatives yeah. that can be really awkward and really difficult, et cetera, um, when you're talking mm -hmm. about the things that people are passionate about and you have a difference of opinion. What does decision-making have to do with this conversation, with, with, with the difficult conversations? Yes, so this is another area where we tend to go awry, and actually quite a bit more often than 20% of the time. And this is a 
particularly problematic and challenging topic because what people tend to do in these sorts of conversations is lead with facts and then start arguments. And there's a lot of research that shows that arguments don't actually change people's minds. They cause people who you're speaking with to, and you yourself often, to become defensive or aggressive. And then when we become emotionally aroused, our gut perceives the other person as the enemy. You know, there's a, often when we think about arguments, we think of you know, undermining our opponent, attacking our opponent, defending our positions. The way we think about them causes us to perceive are the person we're speaking with as an enemy. And when we perceive the person we're speaking with as an enemy, we perceive our perspective as the right thing. We don't orient toward the facts. We don't orient toward the truth. We orient toward defending ourselves, defending our perspective in whatever ways that, in whatever ways that involves. And that's really bad for having a collaborative, productive conversation. Really problematic. So if we go with our gut on how we have difficult conversations, we're going to fail. We're just going to really fail very often, much more often than 20% of the time. So there are many, many okay, more effective tactics. When, let me interrupt yeah. here, though, because when you say we're going sure. to fail, is the purpose of this mm-hmm. conversation to convince the other person that you're right, or is the purpose of the conversation just to uh, connect emotionally, or is the what is the purpose of... Mm-hmm. Arguing with somebody, whether it's effective or not effective. Great question. So whether you want to connect with that person or whether you want to convince with that, that person, the baseline kind of point of conversations where you have different perspectives is to, if, you're, if you know that the person is confused for some clear reason, if you know that they, they are mistaken about reality, your goal is to convince that person, that's one of to believe reality, and we can talk about what that means, believe the facts, believe the truth. The other, uh, you can have another purpose, which is to discover the truth if you are not pretty confident already in what the facts are about the matter. That's two. And third, you can have a purpose of connecting emotionally, like you mentioned. None of those purposes is going to be served by debates and arguments. So that's going to be harmed by all of these by all, it's going to be not productive. And so because of the intuitive tendencies that we have, because of our intuitions. Okay. Um, So if our purpose uh, is to get along, why do we want to debate or argue it at all? If you get along, uh, you're not you're not connecting emotionally. So your goal, okay. if your goal is to connect emotionally, that's not about getting along. You know, if you have a different perspective than the other person, and that's a problem for you, otherwise you wouldn't start the conversation. If you just avoid having the conversation, you're just going to go grow apart and distant, and, and you know, be one of those forty percent who has a divorce. <laughs> And lost their house. They're a mess. Those people are just a mess. Exactly. (laughs) Okay. All right. So say we're at the family uh, big annual dinner, and Uncle Joe is uh, 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 adamant about his religion, and he wants to convince everybody else of his truth. Mm -hmm. Right. Where do we go there? Right. So here you want to focus on what uh, your purpose is. If you 
talk about religion. That's kind of a question of interpretation, and you don't. It's not necessarily helpful to try to convince Uncle Joe that he's wrong. It's all about his beliefs and his faith, his interpretation of the world. So you can kind of, you know, play down the conversation. You can talk to Uncle Joe about, hey, let's, you know, keep the peace. Let's not, you know, go into any challenging topics that would upset people. So there I would recommend that you, if your purpose is to have a peaceful family dinner, lead the conversation away from religion. <laughs> that can be yeah. pretty harmful. How about those Yankees? <laughs> yes. Very good. Yeah. So you can have that. Uh, if Uncle Joe is talking about something where he's actually factually mistaken, that's, again, one conversation. If he's talking about something where you're not sure, that's another conversation. And if you just want to kind of connect emotionally and let Uncle Joe have a piece of your mind about some way he's misbehaving, that, that's a third type of conversation. So let's go with the first type of conversation where Uncle Joe's actually mistaken. Let's say he's talking about um, human, that humans don't cause climate change. So we can talk, you know, that's a clear example um, where the science, which is the best way that we as human beings have of discovering the facts, you know, let's just back up here and talk about the facts. So facts, what, what I mean by facts, what scholars who speak about this topic and mean by facts, mean by truth-oriented behaviors, are behaviors that are most likely to result in an accurate evaluation of reality, where reality is determined by what we see and observe with our senses. You know, what we see, what we hear, what we taste, uh, what we smell, and so on. Uh, so what we touch. So looking at the sense, looking, using our senses to observe reality, we can determine facts. We can determine facts about the world. And this is how science works. Science uses our senses to look at the world and say, hey, what happens if I do this experiment? You know, what's the temperature going to be like? You know, we can... Uh, look at the thermometer and say it's 70 degrees outside. That's a fact. Now we can interpret and say that's hot or that's cold, that's interpretation. But science doesn't really go into that sort of thing. The interpretation goes into, okay, that's 70 degrees. Let's all agree that it's 70 degrees. So that's what I talk about when I mean facts, specific observable aspects of reality. And when I talk about Uncle Joe being wrong about global, about humans not causing global warming, that's what I mean. That, Scientists have looked at this topic, and it is you know, pretty strong scientific consensus that humans have caused significant global warming. So this is a, a conversation where you would want to, if your purpose is to help Uncle Joe realize what the facts about this matter are, that's one type of conversation. So we can talk about that if you want, Heather. Okay. Well, I want to ask, what is our purpose in, sure. in engaging Uncle Joe about this? Because you said earlier that chances are we're not going to convince other people of, that we're right if they have a firm belief anyway. So, so if they have, what is our if they have, um, Sure. If they have a firm belief that is about inter values, it's a question of values, what they value, that's a different sort of thing than they, if they have a false belief about reality, about the facts of reality. So if you have a false belief about the facts of reality, you know, maybe Uncle Joe uh, thinks that you know, Aunt Jemima slept with someone, falsely thinks that. That's one false belief about reality. And if you have some facts about that, then you can talk about it. You can have a talk conversation about, uh, with Uncle Joe about global warming, and that is actually demonstrably accurate based on the science in this matter. 
or you can talk about other things that are demonstrably factually accurate. So you can effectively convince people who have beliefs about the world that are observably wrong, that don't believe the facts. And there's a strategy called eGrip that I talk about in the book. What's it called? eGrip, Emotions, Goals, Rapport, Information, and Positive Reinforcement, eGrip. And that's a strategy that you can use to help you maximize your chance of convincing Uncle Joe and other people who have false beliefs to believe in the facts. You know, I, I understand what you're saying, and I know that this is something that, that I can learn from, but there's also a little part of me that thinks, well, aren't I just egotistic to think that I have the, all the right answers and that I need to convince this, this um, you know, poor Uncle Joe who's so stupid? Mm. Maybe well, there's some legitimacy to Uncle Joe's opinions or, you know, I mean, I don't know. Isn't that being a little too sure of yourself that that you have the answer but nobody else does or that Uncle Joe Uncle Joe doesn't I mean maybe Uncle Joe's beliefs for his religion are true you don't know Well I'm not saying anything about Uncle Joe's religion so here we're talking about uh we're, we're getting a little bit more complex and that's fine talking about the epistemo- talking about a question called epistemology which is a question about the source of knowledge So when we talk about observable facts about reality, when we can observe things with our senses. If uh, Uncle Joe says that, you know, if you can both look at the thermometer and say that's 70 degrees outside, that's an observable Mm -hmm. fact about reality. You know, if Uncle Joe insists that it's too warm, that's an interpretation of the situation. And you can talk to Uncle Joe and help him clarify the difference between interpretation and observable fact. (laughs) Because <laughs> no. so, Uncle Joe's going to be uh, really happy to have that conversation with you, I can tell. <laughs> uh, sure. So that's you yeah. know kind of question about epistemology, the source of knowledge. Uh, so getting back a little bit to how you know what you know and how you know what you know is true, you need to have a very clear and good epistemology that progresses from observable facts about reality using your senses. If you can observe with your senses that it's 70 degrees outside based on the thermometer, you know, you have a very, very high probabilistic likelihood that it's actually 70 degrees unless the thermometer is broken. But, you know, with that caveat, it's going to be 70 degrees. So with that sort of clarity and understanding of what do you actually know and how do you know it, that is the epistemology question. How do you know that you are confident, you should be confident in your beliefs? And here we go back to what kind of conversation are you trying to have? Are you trying to have a conversation where you're both mutually trying to figure out the truth? So, for example, a conversation about uh, where you're both trying to mutually figure out the truth relating to politics. You know, there's the recent tax bill that passed. And you can have a conversation about uh, whether the tax bill is going to be good for the middle class or bad for the middle class, you know. That's a conversation you can have and try to figure out the truth about the conversation. So that's one type of conversation. You can also have a conversation about what do most economists think about the bill. And that's actually a fact-based conversation because then you can poll economists and see what they think about the bill. And you can see that most of the economists who are polled and who tend to be actually 
their politics tend to be right-leaning Republican. Most economists think that the bill would be actually bad for the middle class, and you know it would be bad for the economy. Uh, so that's what most economists tend to think. And that's a factual conversation. You know, you're not going to get away and say, you know, I'm shutting my ears. You can't, but it's not going to help you. you can, facts are going to be facts. Uh, that's a fact about what economists as experts think versus an interpretation. Well, you know, you can agree with them or not, but that's two types of conversations. I hope I'm clarifying the difference here. Yes, I think you are a little bit. Um, the, I, I still keep coming back to the, the purpose of all of these conversations. I appreciate the difference between the fact-based and you know the interpretation, because I think a lot of times we assume that our interpretation is the one and the only and the golden shining interpretation of whatever it is we're talking about, again, whether it's religion or the tax bill. Um, and, and I always find that rather arrogant, although I must confess I also think my views are the right ones. <laughs> so <laughs> I am human after all. <laughs> Um, and I really appreciate, you know, clarifying why we're having this conversation, because mm-hmm. I think that backing up all of this this expertise that you're sharing with us with all this information is, you know, I mean, how many times do you have the, you know, at the family dinner, you have the big argument about the religion, and people get mixed up, and people get angry, and it, it hovers around families for years, blah, blah, blah. Why? Why are you doing that? So I really appreciate how you started out with saying, well, you know, what's the purpose of your conversation? Um, because, you know, sometimes I think we don't, as as human beings, we don't really think, why are we having this conversation? We just start having a conversation and we espouse how we feel and then we think the other person's an idiot when they don't feel that way. Mm. Um, and so I, I think, you know, thinking about why do you want this conversation is a, is a really important one. I mean, if it's your child and you're trying to convince them from, you know, the, the, why it would be a bad decision to go live in a yurt in Central Africa for a year, you know, I mean, that's one thing. But if you're trying to convince somebody of some of their deeply held beliefs or even some of their not so deeply held beliefs, um, that's a different thing. So. What I'm taking away from this conversation so far is that, you know, you need to look at your purpose before you just open your mouth and start having engaging in conversation. The other thing that I'm taking away so far is that i got to think about how I keep reacting from my gut instead of, <laughs> instead of other ways. And then um, you're talking about, um, uh, you know, the, the uh, I, I guess it's almost kind of a picking your battle. Um, are we are we having this debate, this discussion based on facts, or are we having this based on our interpretation of the facts? And I think mm-hmm. that there are some areas where there legitimately are mixed information about what the facts are. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm thinking, gosh, I mean, when I was a child, nobody could eat egg yolks because they were going to give you heart attacks, and now egg yolks are mm-hmm. fine. Facts are different now, Right. Um, so that's that's an interesting thing. So that's what I've taken so far, Assistant Professor. Am I, how am I doing? You're doing well. Thank you uh, for clarifying <laughs> that and summarizing it. <laughs> <laughs> so now let's talk about, okay, we've established our purpose is a legitimate purpose. We've established that we want to, I don't know, uh, talk to this other person on fact-based but we also have our beliefs that we want to throw into that conversation because our interpretation of those facts we believe are the right ones. 
Now, how do we go about doing that without alienating everybody around us and letting them and having them leave the conversation thinking that we're idiots and pompous asses? Well, uh, let's talk first about having the simpler conversation where you want to clarify to Uncle Joe what the facts are, and then we can talk about okay. the more complex conversation where you have the beliefs. So, okay, uh, sounds good. When you have the more when you have the more simple conversation where Uncle Joe is simply mistaken on the facts, it still is going to be more, quite a bit more complex than you might intuitively realize because oh. we are human beings are not very comfortable with acknowledging facts that go against our intuitions, that go against our beliefs. And that's a big problem that we need to deal with, how to deal with people. Um, the research on this topic calls such people irrational because rational refers to having clear beliefs uh, that correlate with reality. So rational people are people who see, when they see a thermometer saying 70 degrees, they agree that, yes, the thermometer says 70 degrees. If you look at the thermometer with your eyes and it says 70 degrees, and then you think, well, no, the, the thermometer actually says 80 degrees, that means that is the definition of irrational. There are plenty of people okay. out there who have irrational beliefs have completely mistaken beliefs. For example, uh, there was a study conducted by Leadership IQ of CEOs who were fired, and they found that about one-fifth of the CEOs who were fired were fired for denying reality, by which they meant failing to recognize negative facts about the organization's performance. So they were actually people at the very top level of the organization, 20% of those who were fired, were fired because they failed to recognize, they denied facts about the organization's performance very close to the, <laughs> the gut intuition mistaken rate of mistakes, right? So, you know, and that happens at all levels of the organization, but, you know, this is just CEOs. People at all levels of an organization and solopreneurs, people who work by themselves in any sort of area, they tend to deny negative facts. Now, why does that happen? We have a, a psychological failure mode, so we talked about these thinking errors, called confirmation bias. Now, confirmation bias is our tendency to look for information that conforms to our current beliefs and reject information that doesn't. So if we think of ourselves, let's say if a CEO thinks of uh, herself as a really good leader of a company under whom the company should do well, she would tend to ignore information that would uh, indicate that the company is not doing well even though the most rational thing to do is to look at that information and correct the course of the organization so it actually does well. And the same thing in one's career or one's performance or anything, anything else. So we tend to make these mistakes all the time in all areas of our life. And this is one of the areas I do consulting on and speaking on to organizations to help them address this problem. And that's what I talk about in the Truth Seekers Handbook of Science Based Guide. But we need to keep in mind that Uncle Joe is having some emotional blocks, so this confirmation bias that is preventing him from seeing reality clearly. So we need to understand what is causing Uncle Joe to have this emotional block. Why is he having an emotional problem that is causing him to not see reality clearly? So in terms of, you know, let's say if it's you know, about Aunt Jemima, <laughs> he might be upset uh, you know, about thinking of her sleeping with somebody else. Or in terms of global warming, she might be concerned that the government would impose regulations and then people would lose their jobs. You know, he might lose his job and so on. So we need to understand what is causing that emotional block first. 
That's the first of the four, five steps of eGrid. Let me stop here and okay. see if you have questions, Heather. Okay. Well, no, not right now. Excellent. So the next step is to, after figuring out the emulsions, you figure out, you set shared goals. So let's say, let's talk about global warming with Uncle Joe. You set the shared goal, you say, hey, totally understand, sounds like you're really concerned about economic security. I really understand that economic security is really important. So we can you know, definitely have the same goal as you. We also have a shared goal of ensuring that you know, all members of the family who are here gathered around the table are healthy, or you know, have good health, good physical health. That's really important. So you kind of have a shared goal of that, and then say we also have a shared goal of orienting toward the facts, the truth, whatever the truth may be. So let's establish that shared goal. And so then you go on to build rapport and say you figure out how to connect to Uncle Joe emotionally. Say so totally understand your feelings about you know your concerns about economic security, job loss. You know that's really rough and certainly not a good thing. And so talking about things that would cause Uncle Joe to feel a sense of connection and trust towards you. So once Uncle Joe has a connection and trust, you go on to sharing information. Here's where you bring in facts that, are, uh, that might have been quite problematic if you brought them up at first, but now since you understand where J Uncle Joe's emotions are and you agreed and shared a set of goals and built rapport, you can bring them in now. So with Uncle Joe, you can talk about, hey, you know, there's a lot of benefits to having uh, green energy. Green energy jobs are growing. It has bipartisan support. It's a really growing industry. You know, a lot of people can find jobs in the green energy field and that are going to be, at the same time, environmentally safe and economically profitable. And if they're environmentally safe, they're not spewing out pollution and not killing people because there's a lot of research. Recent studies show that uh, pollution in the United States leads to 200,000 early deaths a year. So you know, a lot of people around the same dinner table that you're sitting with might die because of pollution. So we don't want that. We want everyone to be healthy, right? So, and this is just the fact. This is what the evidence points to. You know, talk about the nature of the evidence. And then as Uncle Joe kind of, you know, updates his beliefs, he provides him with positive reinforcement, which is the last step of eGroup. Emotions, goals, rapport, information, and positive reinforcement. You reinforce him for changing his mind and orienting toward the facts and orienting toward what the truth is so that you have to, uh, so that you are comfortable, emo uh, comfortable emotionally, he's comfort more comfortable emotionally with orienting toward the truth in the future. So that's the five steps of eGrip. Okay, um, but one of the things that crossed my mind while you're explaining this is that you say, be sure of the facts, be sure of the facts, but I can show you conflicting studies. I mean, there are some things that we can all agree on. There are some things where there just isn't dissenting opinion that makes any rational sense at all. But there are some things, um, I hesitate to use global warming because I, I think that's a stretch, but uh, for example, I work in, do in the field of domestic violence, and we see study after study after study about um, uh, uh, different aspects of domestic violence and fathers' rights. And yet you will see, for example, uh, there's kind of an assumption that when women uh, accuse a, a, a divorcing spouse of, um, uh, I don't know, sexual molestation of a child, mm -hmm. there is research that shows that this is not 
you know, this is overwhelmingly accurate. Or how about, mm-hmm. um, yeah, okay, so there's overwhelming research that shows that. And yet, I can find, I mean, all you have to do is Google, and you will find supposed research that counteracts that and comes up with numbers on how frequently this is just made up and lying to hurt men. So when you say mm-hmm. the facts, how can I be sure that my facts, in some cases, I mean, some things are clear, you know. I, but in some things, how can I be so sure that my facts are the one and true facts when, in fact, somebody can find conflicting information? And apparently a lot of people, um, I, you know, how, how, do, how do I, how do I, I guess what I'm saying is how can I be so darn confident that I'm going to try to influence someone else's opinion based on their wrong facts when they're, how how do I know what's right? I mean, how do you, how can you even attempt to convince somebody else that you're right in areas where there are so many conflicting opinions and such conflicting supposed research? Yes, I think this is a really important question. Uh, And it goes back to the question of epistemology. How do you know what you know? And uh, here we need to show a lot of humility. And one of the most important aspects of humility in epistemology, in figuring out what you know and how you know it, is deferring to experts. Expert opinion, people who have studied this topic and researched it for a long time, are going to be the ones who we should trust and rely on, as the people who are going to be most likely right. That's the humble position to take. You know, I'm not, you know, I don't know that much about the science and global warming at all. You know, that's, that's not my area of expertise. I'm, uh, uh-huh. I have a lot of expertise in decision making. You know, you can trust me on that. I'm an expert. I don't have much expertise in the science of global warming. So I am very humble on this question, and I defer this to people who are experts, who are the scientists in global warming. And I look at the consensus of the science in global warming which is the consensus you can recognize by things like polls of scientists who, you know, you're, they're polled and they say, what do you think about human-caused global warming? Uh, what, you can look at meta-analysis, which are reviews of a number of studies in the field. Now, the thing about studies is that studies, individual studies, can be done in problematic ways to get the outcomes that you want. And companies, yes. drug companies do this all the time when they try to convince you of, you know, certain, you know, buy certain drugs. You know, they can run the same study 50 times and get lucky once out of those 50 times due to random chance and just publish that study. That's a phenomenon called publication bias. And mm-hmm. uh, so you should be very careful about studies done by drug companies for that reason. And a whole bunch of other things that... Uh, studies are corrupt in a number of ways. So what you want to do is look at meta-analysis. A meta-analysis is a review of a number of studies. Let's say scholars take a thousand studies that were done on uh, climate change or domestic violence and see what the consensus is of those studies. So that's another way that you recognize it. And the third way is you look at prestigious bodies of research, uh, prestigious scientific bodies. So the American, uh, you know, the Academy for Climate Change or the Academy on uh, Climate Science, and you see what they say, or the Academy on, you know, Academic Association on Domestic Violence and see what it says. So it takes a lot of humility and saying that, hey, I don't know, and 
you, Uncle Joe, you don't know either. You're not a suitor unless, you know, you're a researcher on domestic violence or something like that. You need to defer to experts and see what the experts have to say. And that okay. is a very important humility, position of humility. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's true. You know, when you were describing your e-grip method, t- tell us again what that what that stands for. Emotion, what what sure. is it? What's the Emotions, e-grip stand goals, for? rapport, information, and positive reinforcement. Okay. What's the positive reinforcement? How does that how does that come out? Sure. So when Uncle that where you Joe say, changes Good job, mind. Uncle Joe. <laughs> you now think <laughs> like me. Good oh. job, Uncle Joe. <laughs> no, it's it's uh you want to avoid sounding in condescending. You want to say, Hey, you know, this is that that's awesome. It takes a lot of strength to change your opinion and to, you know, orient toward the facts. It's not an easy thing to do. Many people aren't able to do it. You know, and so that's great that you're able to do it. Thank you so much for doing that. That's 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 great that we can have come to this shared understanding. So that's yeah. uh, the kind of positive reinforcement you would provide. The goal is to get the person to associate positive feelings with orienting toward the facts, and that's a research-based strategy of changing someone's mental habits. So this is basically you're trying to shift someone's mental habits to be more oriented toward the truth and the facts so that you won't need to have the same conversation with Uncle Joe about 50 other topics. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, and what's the likelihood that after we go through this and after we have these conversations and after we are able to perhaps sway somebody closer to our way of thinking, are there any studies on, okay, they're, they're doing, you know, I'm having the conversation with Uncle Joe at Christmas this year. What's the like? And, I, and we kind of make headway, and he kind of starts orienting towards my facts, and I give him the positive reinforcement. What's the likelihood that next Christmas that will have really caught hold and will have changed him long term? Do we know? We don't know. So that's a really good question. We don't know, and we don't have studies on this topic of what will we know that these sort of personal one-on-one conversations work. Uh, we know that they have some persistence, um, but I think the studies that, that I've seen have shown a month that there's some persistence in these sort of conversations, uh, so a month afterwards. But we, haven't, we don't know what happens in a year. So one of the things that I'm working on is the Pro-Truth Pledge project at protruthpledge.org. That's a commitment by people like Uncle Joe and myself and everyone to orient toward the facts and the truth above everything else, above ideology, above everything else. Just commit to the facts. And uh, what it takes is just having anyone, anyone who's a listener, go into P-R-O-T-R-U-T-H-P-L-E-D-G-E.org, protruthpledge.org, and committing to 12 behaviors, behaviors like fact-checking information before sharing it, uh, clarifying between your opinion and the facts, retracting information if others challenge it and you can't verify it, and so on. Very truth-oriented behaviors. Now, research shows that when you make a commitment like that, that's going to be something that's much more likely to be long-lasting. And people have done research, for example, on virginity pledges, which is kind of a similar concept. And virginity pledges are actually quite effective at delaying people having sex. So from similar demographics and other sorts. Wow, of this conversation just took a turn I wasn't prepared for. <laughs> what? 
about the virginity pledge? The virginity pledge. Okay. All right. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, so I'm, but I'm you're talking saying, about it as a, as, a, about... as a method of accomplishing something. You're right. Exactly. That it, so it has been it, it has been shown to be quite effective at delaying sexual onset, just as a fact. Like that's that's what happens. People have sex later. Wow. Okay. After. I didn't yeah. realize that. I really. That's interesting. I yeah. really didn't realize. Yeah, okay. take a look at the research. It, uh, yeah. um, so there are studies that show that taking a commitment, making a commitment contract of, with, and you know, taking a pledge actually does have a long-lasting impact. So uh, if you want to, Uncle Joe, and just in general, anyone, to be more committed to the facts and the truth, you encourage them to go to protruthpledge.org and take the pledge. And we encourage everyone, actually, all the listeners, to go to ProTruthPledge.org and make commitment themselves to the truth and the facts, because that will help change the people around them. So there's a phenomenon called network effects, where once you do something positive, let's say you lose weight or you stop smoking or something like that, that has a very strong positive impact on your social network. It changes them, especially if you're public about it. So research shows that if you stop smoking, then your spouse is about 67% more likely to stop smoking. And if you, uh, your close friends are about 35% more likely to stop smoking. So in a similar way, if you make commitments to the truth and the facts and are public about it, say, hey, I took the pro-truth pledge at protruthpledge.org and want everyone else to take it, that makes other people more likely to take it. So that's a positive wave of impact to promote truthfulness in our society. So for long last I want to know if I, if I sign the truth do. pledge, do I get one of those little fake wedding rings? <laughs> you don't get a you know, <laughs> sorry, you don't get a wedding ring. But uh, oh, darn. you as a public okay. figure sorry. You as a public figure, since you are a radio show host, you get to put the Pro Truth Pledge website seal on your website and ah, uh, okay. you can Yep. So but no wedding, no fake wedding yourself. man. All right, all right. I'm I'll sorry, think about it. <laughs> okay. The fake it's wedding man like would a... be a real seller for me, though. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> oh, and of course I'm being silly I'll keep here. Mind. Um, yeah. Um, I've learned a lot, and one of the things that you you talked about, and we kind of went over it a little bit, but it just rang for me because. I actually um, have an acquaintance, and he actually is also a radio host and much more prominent than I, and he um, does a political show, and he has always been so skillful, regardless of his political views and whether I agree with him or not, I have always been in awe of how he was able to interview people and conduct conversations, even in the face of, you know, firmly held beliefs that were contrary to his own, and... And I really started to pay attention to him a couple of years ago. How does he do this so well? How does he do this so well? And I realized that when he was, say he, let's continue with your global warming thing. He doesn't believe in global warming at all. Not at all, not at all. Doesn't, it's just fake. Mm-hmm. Somebody made it up. You know, the, right, the, the left-wingers just made it up for funding or something, right? So that's his firmly held belief. He interviews somebody who absolutely believes in it, and the only people who wouldn't believe that global warming was caused by human beings and is a real thing is because they're idiots and that kind of thing. So we're starting at these very polar opposite ends. My, my acquaintance would start a conversation, and I realized 
that the reason he was even able to accomplish anything in these conversations, I'm not saying he necessarily always changed someone's minds, but he mm-hmm. he would keep backing up until he reached a point of agreement. Even if he had to back up all the way to, we can agree the sky is blue, right? And <laughs> so with this global warming person, he would say, well, you know, it, it's it, 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 it's true that um, the weather has changed, right? Weather trends have changed. And the other person would say, no, we only go back 100 years in our records, so we don't really know that, blah, blah, blah. Okay, well, can we agree that the way what's happening now with temperature is causing problems? Well, yeah, it's causing problems. Okay, we can agree that it's causing problems. And once he reached that point, whatever it was, where they had agreement the conversation changed from that point forward, even though they went back to those areas in which they disagreed. And when you were mm-hmm. talking about uh, one of your points, I thought I flashed on him, and I thought you're talking about what my my friend was doing in his interviews in mm-hmm. his debate technique. Yeah, do you, it sounds like there's definitely some some similarities to that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah it's, and it's so I've tried to, to learn from that agreement. Yeah, to find that point of agreement, because once you and I can agree, we kind of have a different relationship, don't we? We're no longer totally adversarial. We agree on this. Yeah, one of the things that people tend to forget is that human beings are very similar to each other. We share, even with a person I disagree with the most on Earth, I don't know, some terrorist somewhere, I still share, you know, maybe 90% of similarities. You know, I like to enjoy my food and he likes to enjoy, you know, his food. You know, we may love families and so on. We may both, you know, like pets, like cats. He may like dogs, so maybe we're going to be different that way. I don't know. But we actually share so much more than uh, we differ on. And we can find points of agreement with just about anyone if we are recognized that we as people are about 90% the same and our points of disagreement are, at most, 10% of what divides us. Wow. Well, there, that's a strong 10%, though, for a lot of things. A lot of these issues It's sure. a strong 10%. Mm-hmm. I've learned a lot. I'm looking at our time. We have about four minutes left. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you wanted to cover? Hmm. Oh, I want to ask you if you'd be interested in taking the approach to pledge yourself as a public figure, because that's a... That's something that we are encouraging, especially public figures and private citizens as well, to do because that's a way to change the dynamics and orient our society toward the truth and the facts as opposed to orienting toward deception, misinformation, of which there has been so much recently, and and, uh, that's a big problem. Well, you know, that's a great way to put me on the spot. Thank you, Gleb. You're welcome. <laughs> um, <laughs> and i got to tell you, my hang-up is this idea of whose truth, which, you know, which studies, which, you know, I, I just, I don't know. I just don't know that I'm ready for that. I'm not sure. You've been very persuasive, mm-hmm. and I've really appreciated, you know, everything you've had to say, but I just think... I don't know. I, I'm I'm not ready to do your pledge. I'm sorry. <laughs> no worries. So <laughs> because uh, I just I want the say, truth. I mean yeah. the truth. Who? There's so much conflicting information and exported information out there. There's so much. I don't know everything, and I don't. You should. I don't. No, uh, that's what I, that's what I'm talking about. Humility. 
having humility and saying that experts know better is an important part of the pledge. It, it encourages people to defer to experts as one of the behaviors. And yeah. that's just simply it. I certainly support the concept that you're talking about and your e-grip. I, I, you know, I support all that. But I just feel personally that there's a little bit of, little bit of arrogance in assuming that what I read, understand, and assume is truth is necessarily truth. And maybe that has something to do with the fact that I'm getting a little long in the tooth. I mean, just like the whole egg yolk thing. I mean, I've seen truth come and go. Um, I remember when you couldn't eat red M&M's, you know, because it was horrible for you. And that was the truth. And then suddenly they have a new study and they decide, you know, hot red M&M dye is not going to kill you. It's fine. Um, so I, I think that's my hesitation, is that I've, I've seen these truths change. Well, that's fine. And I mean, one of the behaviors of the pledge is to celebrate updating beliefs. When information changes to update your beliefs is a very good thing, to change your beliefs and say, okay, based on new information, I now believe this thing. And that's a very important behavior of being truth-oriented. The pledge is about behaviors. It's not about some facts or some something static. Oh, I mean, what's well, I'll tell you what I'll do. It's, I'll go to your website. Mm-hmm. I'll check it out, and you may see my name there. Okay? That would be Give wonderful. us the website again okay. so that if the listeners want to check it out more, sure. they It's ProTruthPledge.org again. Mm-hmm. ProTruthPledge. Pro Dot org. But dot you're not org. going to get a little fake wedding right. ring, okay? He already said that. No, so. I'm sorry. But, but again, <laughs> protruthpledge.org. And, uh, yes, so you can take the pledge there. It's been featured in a number of venues. Now, uh, if listeners want to know more about this and how to avoid thinking errors and how to make help themselves make good decisions, they can check out my book, Amazon Bestseller, The Truth Seeker's Handbook, A Science-Based Guide. It's available on Amazon now. Again, that's The Truth Seeker's Handbook. A science-based guide. Yeah. And we'll check that out as well. I've really learned a lot. I've enjoyed this conversation. Uh, thank you so much, Gleb. And, and uh, good luck with the, the truth pledge and good luck with your research in decision-making science, which i got to tell you, I, I've never heard of decision-making science until today, and I, mm. I, I, I like to think I'm pretty well-educated. So I'm kind of cool on this. This was an interesting topic for me, and I've enjoyed it tremendously. So I have as well. Thank pledge, you for having me on. org, And please join us again next week. We're going to be covering another topic um, that will help us figure out the world we live in. Thank you very much, Webb, and uh, thank you for listening on Three Women, Three Ways. See you next week.